Thank you, Lord. We have so much to be grateful for. Um, We thank you. Specifically, the Sunday school class, we thank you for your holy scriptures. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that opens our eyes to the truth of your word. We pray, Lord, that that truth would would mold us, would shape us, would um, give us clearer vision of what you are communicating through your scriptures. May we not be children in your word, but instead uh, be eating the meat, Lord. Even if we have to cut it up into really small pieces, we pray that you would feed us the meat that we would digest it, that we would grow stronger, and that we would glorify you as a result. Bless this time that we get now, looking at the descent of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so, all right, um, instead of this just being a general shout, I'm going to be a little more intentional here. So, um, Gerald, what can you give me with upper shield? Give me, okay. Abraham's bosom, good. Okay, yeah, exactly. All right, Jane, can you give me anything for lower shield? Yes, the more generalized term, and then the, what else it's, uh, is used is uh, terms that are, we find in the account of the rich man and Lazarus. There we go, place of torment, place of anguish. So, torment and anguish, very good. And then, uh, who's willing to take on some lowest shield? Steve, what do you got? Uh, uh, no, 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 you, you, yeah, lowest, not, not final, don't, there we go, abyss, so we have abyss, there we go, uh, I would actually, let's go pit, because more frequently when you just see the word pit, it's a, it's a generalized term for the, the grave, and the realm of the dead when you see just pit. But when it's more specific to lowest Sheol, then we have uh, bottomless pit. Um, there we go, Tartarus. Yes. Good, Tartarus. Did we miss anything there? Yeah, yeah, Abaddon. Thank Abaddon. Yes. Uh, are you talking about... So our final judgment, we have what Steve started to say, uh, the valley. But what, what's the actual word? How about, okay, there I heard it, Gehenna. That's right, we have Gehenna. We have Lake of Fire. That's right, Outer Darkness, good. There we go, Fiery. Nice. Yeah, okay. Gehenna, fiery furnace, outer darkness, second death, lake of fire. What was my, oh, fiery furnace, that's my, I don't even know my own. Oh, yeah, lake of fire, fire, yeah, I just, okay, very good. All right, so you're continuing to think of these things, and then, of course, what do we always want to remember that is a, another distinction 
between this whole thing up here and this down here. Right, everything in this rod, upper shield, lower shield, lowest shield, temporary. And the, there we go, the, the word we like to use, intermediate state. Good. And then, of course, this one being, yes, this, there, if this happens, there's no change. This, that's, that's done. Final, finalization. Okay, you got it. All right, let's, we have a lot of scriptures to cover today. We're going to start with this, uh, I think, we'll see how this plays out. My plan is to do a part one and a part two of the Descent of Christ, so this would be part one. So this is actually our sixth class of uh, this Realm of the Dead. We're going to uh, look at the Descent of Christ, and uh, this is just the way that I've organized it um, with, with these scriptures here. So basically, we've ju- all the stuff that we just filled in, that we've talked about, that clearly you guys are getting a hold of as far as the locale and how those, uh, how those analogies are used... Um, within scripture, you have that geography, you have that blueprint now down in your head. You've got these terms, you're looking for them in scripture, you're asking questions like, well, wait a minute, when I see a particular English translation that says hell, now you're hopefully saying, um, you know, can I, can I know please what the Greek word is behind it so that I know, you know, give myself a, a little more knowledge about what's being communicated. But now we're going to see how all of that applies to what it is that Christ accomplished, or at least uh, we're going to start to look at that. And as with pretty much any significant doctrine in Scripture, it starts in the Old Testament, right? The really, the, the big doctrinal theological topics start in the Old Testament, and then you start seeing allusions or echoes, foreshadowing, Typology, you start seeing all those things that take place in the Old Testament because they're things that are happening that are pointing forward to the, the big show, right? The big dance to what Jesus himself is going to do. So let's look at some of those things. Um, some of the verses that we're going to look at, I, I'm pretty sure we've looked at in past Sunday school classes, but you'll see now that what we're doing is instead of just looking at those scriptural references in relation to the locations. Now we're looking at those scriptural references in reference to Christ's mission. So with that in mind, um, we're going to start with Carol here with Psalm 30 verses 1 to 3. And we're going to see a little pattern here. But uh, I'll, I'll let you go ahead and Read it, Carol. Okay. I will extol you, O Lord, or O Yahweh, for you have drawn me up and not let my foes rejoice over me. O Yahweh, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Yahweh, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Okay, so what we're going to see is that there is a pattern here that describes salvation as being a transition from suffering to glory. What starts as suffering ends with glory. And the, and the terminology is this idea of salvation. So that's what uh, is contained in those three verses that Carol just read from Psalm 30. So the question that I would ask from Psalm 30 there, where David is saying that, all right, let me, let me actually turn there for just a second. 
Psalm 30. So my question is, So my, my question is, when he says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and not uh, let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. So as I already mentioned, actually, the, the term pit is frequently a generalized term for Sheol. So in David writing this, is he being physically raised from the grave, from the pit, from the dead, from Sheol? No, he's alive, right? And yet he's using this language in reference to salvation, and it's this idea of, tra- of being transferred from suffering to glory, and even in his language, so he's using it metaphorically for the idea of being raised up from Sheol, from the pit. And of course, uh, we know that that now, now with all the study that we've done, like you just automatically, how can you not think of what Christ, what's going on with Christ and the fact that he descended into Sheol, he descended into the pit and uh, that transition from suffering to glory. All right, let's go to First Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of God was uh, in them was, indicating what had been predicted, the sufferings of, of Christ and the subsequent glories. Okay, so these uh, prophets that were filled with the Spirit of Christ, so with the Holy Spirit, they were committing themselves to, to, to trying to figure out who will it be and what will the timing be and what's already in there, almost uh, in a parenthetical way that, that's just assumed as part of that is the person and the time that they're looking for is somebody that's going to endure suffering and that is going to transfer into glory. So... Uh, They're inquiring into the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And then one more time, we've looked at this account, I think maybe a couple of times. Um, This is on the road to Emmaus, so Luke 24, verses 25 to 27. So this is uh, what what, um, Steve is about to read is Jesus uh, speaking, I believe, uh, in verses 25 to 27. Go ahead, Steve. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All right, so twice we have all the prophets. We have the generalized statement of Moses and the prophets. And that what it is that Jesus is saying to these men on the road to Emmaus is that all the prophets and that the Moses and the prophets, to refer to the Hebrew canon, were there to describe um, the suffering and eventual glory of Christ. Now, uh, as to the nature of the salvation, so the way I would put it here is if we want to dial in just a little bit more on this arrow, <laughs> as far as the transition 
from the suffering to the glory, right? That we're trying to get a little bit closer look of what it is that's going on there. Let's look at Psalm 16, verses 9 to 11. Kaylin, take it away. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Okay, thank you. And of course, um, we're familiar with that because of it being repeated in Acts chapter 2. But in the entirety of Psalm 16, David is describing how his complete hope that he has, his refuge, everything, he's pinning everything on God sparing him from an eternity in Sheol, in that prison of Sheol. In fact, because it's not in the... Um, it's not in the uh, Acts 2 reference, but I, it is of note here f- from what Kalen just read in Psalm 16. Right, in fact, uh, was it at the beginning of what she read here? Let me find it. So Psalm 16, um, verses 9 to 11. It says... Therefore, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure. So now, again, we continue to get this idea of we know what happens when someone goes to the grave, when someone goes to the pit, when someone goes to the realm of the dead, when someone goes to Hades, when someone goes to Sheol. You've become familiar with these terms, and when they go there, their soul descends into either upper Sheol or lower Sheol, and their body decays. And here in this psalm, we see that there is an explicit reference to the body. It says, my flesh also dwells secure. And then it goes on to make a reference to the soul, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Um, Acts 2, 22 to 28. So this is the, the kind of the parallel one. Lita. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Okay, so in what Lita read, we have uh, this reference to pangs of death, which is imprisonment language. In fact, um, the the term, it's it's kind of interesting, the... um, uh, the Greek term there can actually mean like noose, uh, you know, tether, something like that, in addition to the pangs. So you have these pangs of death, this, this, um, um, this chaining, essentially, that has this imprisonment language. And what we also see here is there is both a language that describes a location and a personification. So 
Uh, notice there in verse 24 from where uh, Lita just read, so Acts 2.24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. So there's a sense in which it's, lo- it's a location. God raised him up, up from a place. And then additionally, it says, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So there's also a sense of personification, like Sheol itself wants to, has its own desire, that has a power of some kind, that has a volition to keep him in there. But he, of course, could not be kept in the grave. God could pull him out of that location. Um, Just as David expressed complete reliance on God, so the Son and his humanity obeyed the Father completely in that way. Okay, now, some of you may remember from uh, when I was preaching through Mark and we got, we got to um, uh, Jesus just before uh, him walking, you know, he headed north before he went south. He went up to the area of Caesarea Philippi and he went uh, up to Mount Hermon which is also, uh, in some portions of scripture, is Mount Bashan. And that location, that physical location, that geography, is essentially a ground zero for evil. And we looked at that uh, during a couple of those sermons there as well, and we saw verses that talked about all of the different kinds of evil that took place um, at that particular location. And... This is what we know about Mount Hermon um, or about Bashan, is it is within Israel or within uh, basically the promised land, it is the biggest mountain there. To this day, obviously, that that mountain is the biggest. It's the most beautiful. In fact, they get some snow on the top of the mountain. There are different vegetative zones. It's uh, rich and in in all of its... um, you know, flora and everything like that. So what happens is at this particular location, what we have are fallen angels. We have evil beings that are choosing this beautiful location. Does anyone else, can you, can you picture any, any other story from the Old Testament where somebody was given a choice and they saw the beautiful location and chose it for themselves? There you go. There we go. Thank you, Jane. We have Lot. He had an option. He saw the beautiful. He's like, I think I would like that for myself. And I think we have something similar like that happening here. And so just keep that in mind. I'm not going all the way down that, that, that's a, uh, that study. But at a, at a minimum, I think we can see that there is something unique about Bashan, that it is a place of evil. So in uh, Deuteronomy, Og king of Bashan. He was the king of that particular area and of that mountain. And does anyone remember anything unique about Og, king of Bashan? He had a... Yes, he was a giant. He's the one that explicitly, it says, you know, the measurements of the bed, that giant bed. And the, uh, that's King Og's bed. And so Moses, prior to entering the promised land, battles Og, king of Bashan, his reputation preceded him. People, you know, the Israelites were scared, and God said, no, take courage. I'm going to give him into your hand. So Moses ends up going into 
um, this land that is ruled by Og, the king of Bashan. And so in light of that, we're going to read a couple of psalms. So Psalm 68, Paul, verses 15 to 18. O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God has desired for his abode? Yet where the Lord will dwell forever, the chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands, the Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receive gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Okay, now. Notice here in uh, 68, uh, verse 15, where it says, O mountain of God, and then it says, mountain of Bashan, O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan. So this is a large mountain. It has many peaks. And so this mountain itself, which is a, uh, again, we see these ties, the, the way that Scripture works is it's a physical place, it's a real place, but it has its own history. It has baggage. And it has a history of basically being a ground zero for evil. And so this mountain, this mountain of Bashan, in its personification here in this psalm, is being accused. Why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? So God did not choose Bashan, which is referred to in, later in Scripture as Mount Hermon. God did not choose that mountain. We know that later in Scripture he chooses Mount Sinai. That's where he goes down. That's where he gives the law to Moses. And, of course, Mount Sinai is not nearly as big. It's not nearly as fruitful by, you know, by the, uh, at face value when you look at it. It doesn't seem like it's, it should be something given honor. So you see how the personification is taking place in comparing the two mountains. O many-peaked mountain at the mount that God desired for his abode. Yes, where will Yahweh, where, uh, where will Yahweh, where Yahweh will dwell forever? And then it talks about this battle that takes place. Remember, this is Psalm, so this is poetic language that's describing these things that are happening. The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands. Upon thousands. The Lord is among them. All right, so we have chariots of God. We have this host that is accompanying God, and that Lord is with them. And see, He has chosen Sinai, right? Sinai is now in the sanctuary. And what does God do? Mount, uh, Mount Hermon is taller, Bashan, it's taller, it's bigger. Well, God ascends on high, leading His host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that Yahweh God may dwell there. So what we see is that in this poetic language, there is an evil mountain that is looking down on Sinai, but God, from the mount that he has chosen from Sinai, has ascended. He has overtaken the mount, in a sense, the mountain that has been occupied or that has been claimed by evil. He is 
um, he is initiating an attack with his host against this mountain, against this evil, and he is then leading a train of captives. And that language of bringing the captives with him is very important language. Let's go, uh, same psalm, where am I at? Gerald, verses 19 to 23. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears up. God is our salvation. Our God is a God of salvation, and to God, the Lord, belong deliverances from death. But God will strike the heads of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea, that you may strike your feet in their blood, that tongues of your dogs may have their portion from the foe. Okay, so now we're looking at salvation actually from death, from real death. And we see in verse 22 that Gerald just read, it says, the Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan. So in other words, there are captives. These are the captives that he is saving, that he is setting free. The Lord is going to bring them back from Bashan. And then it says in uh, the second half of 22, I will bring them back from the depths of the sea. And as you uh, read Revelation, you will see that Satan is frequently compared to a a sea dragon, a sea monster. Uh, You also have this imagery that we've already looked at in that three-tiered cosmology above the (laughs) earth, on the earth, below the earth, and that below the earth is that sense of below the sea. And of course, um, Pastor Nick has mentioned more than once that whole idea of the sea being a chaos. And so if you are in Sheol, you are in that imprisonment that lies beneath the sea. And so this poetic language that's being used, I will bring them back from Bashan, I will bring them back from the depths of the sea. So that's Sheol language. He will bring them back from Sheol. And then in verse 23, that you may strike your feet in their blood and the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from the foe. So that means that those that were God's children, those that were the captives being held in Sheol by those that controlled Bashan, are going to be killed in this battle or they're going to be completely defeated to the point where the captives themselves are trampling through their blood. That's how decisive the victory is going to be. This is all descriptive, poetic, pictorial language that you may strike your feet in their blood and the tongues of their dogs may have their portion from the foe. And all of that is happening as they return from the depths of the sea and from Bashan. Now, With all that in mind, okay, that poetic language about the um, about the mountain, the personification that's being used. Let's go to something that you're probably a little more familiar with, Matthew 16. Do I even have it written up here? I do. No, I wrote 12. Well, that's not right. You want 16? I think it's 16, isn't it? Is it 16 or 12? It's 12 deals with Jonah. No, no. We're going there, but not yet. 16. Oh, oh, yeah. Did I miss? 39 and 40. Okay, you stay there. Give me another Jane. Or who are you near? Cindy, Cindy. You, Matthew 16, 15 to 20. Because we don't have enough scriptures up here, so. 
He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter on this you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Okay. Now, you know about this imprisonment language. You know about Sheol and Hades. You know about Upper Sheol, Lower Sheol. You know uh, at this particular time, this episode that Cindy just read, Jesus has completed his earthly Galilean ministry. This is the in-between before he goes back south to Jerusalem. He travels north to Caesarea, uh, Caesarea Philippi. And when he gives this, um, uh, th- when he pr- provides these words, when he makes this declaration, he is at the foot of Mount Hermon. He is at Mount Bashan. This is just prior to the transfiguration. So he is standing on the rock of that mountain, known as the ground zero for evil, the same one that is described in Psalms as having the captives, where he says, the gates of what? Right, Hades. The Greek word there is Hades. So now, when we read this, we go, the gates of Hades will not prevail. Jesus is standing there. Yes, there's ties to Peter and his name and everything, but that is not the primary thing. Jesus is showing up at a location on purpose. And as I mentioned in that sermon a long time ago, he's poking the bear. He's kicking the hive. He's going up there to say the gates of Hades is not going to prevail. This war is taking place. A war is already underfoot, and Jesus has gone up there to do that. And then from this location, he takes his closest disciples, his closest apostles, they go on up to the top, and we have everything that uh, is connected to the transfiguration. So, I mean, the, the, the things that are going on right here are just unbelievable. And so with this knowledge that you have of Sheol and Hades and the underworld and death and all of those things and the idea of imprisonment, now when we read this and say, okay, when he says the gates of Hades will not prevail, I, I think a, a more accurate view is to say Hades, it isn't that they won't prevail from God um, breaking down the bars, you know, him, so much because everybody's going into Hades. It's, it's, a, it's a one-way thing. We already looked at the fact that prophets would say, basically, I've got one foot in the, in the grave. I'm basically in Sheol. They're right there. So there's no problem getting in. You can check out any time you like, right? But you can never leave. So Jesus is going to go down there. That, and, of course, the evil one doesn't realize even the, the, the magnitude of what he is declaring. The gates of hell will not pro, The gates of Hades will not prevail because he's going to go in there, but he's going to leave because he, he's going to take the keys to death in Hades. Okay, with that, now we transition to the sign of Jonah, and we get a better idea then as well of this mixture of Old Testament connecting, using the uh, very illustrative language to describe 
all of these things. Go ahead. Uh, the sign of Jodah, uh, Matthew 12, 39 and 40. But he, speaking of Jesus, answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Okay, go ahead and hustle over to Wayne. So what we have here in Jesus' reference that Nick just read, we have in this, you know, isn't it amazing the way God does this in his word? He uses a few words to just drag all of this history and everything, uh, all, all the the prophecies and the context that come with it in just a few words, he imports all of that into what he's saying. And so he's making this connection to the sign of Jonah, and it has a connection to both body and to soul. And so as to body, um, read first, Wayne, read just uh, the very last verse there of Jonah chapter 1, so 117. And Jehovah appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And yeah, Jehovah appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Okay, so we have, that is a physical reality. So that is something that would be um, connected to Jonah, and in this case, because Jesus is using the reference to his body, he is going to be in the grave, physically, buried in the earth for three days. And then it moves into what goes on with his soul, and go ahead in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, Wayne. Then Jonah prayed to Yahweh, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to Yahweh out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. You cast me into deep, into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet... I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head and roots of the mountains. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought, brought up my life from the pit. O Yahweh, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered... Yahweh, and my prayers came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. And Yahweh spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Okay, so see how we have this transition from that last verse in chapter 1 of what takes place with the body of Jonah, connect that to Christ, and then what takes place at the very end of that account in verse 10 of chapter 2 where he is vomited out and you have essentially his body coming back. But in between there we have kind of this whole, what I would call a soul speech. And now we can even reflect on... um, that account that Jesus provided of the rich man and Lazarus. And, and remember those things that we looked at and we go, well, there was, a, uh, there was an awareness, there was a recognition, there was an ability to communicate. This isn't just a, a soul sleep like, like, you know, you don't know what's happening. And so we have this similar description where Jonah cries out. In verse 2 it says there that he cries out from Sheol. 
So think of that whole same rich man type, you know, or, or rich man and Lazarus, I should say, type location where he's down there and yet he's still crying out. In verse 6, we have that imprisonment language that there are bars and that he's in the pit or he's in the grave. And then you get down to verse 10 and there is a comparison that uh, this fish grave could not keep him. So again, we're leveraging that, that scenery, or Jesus leveraged that scenery that we've been looking at about the underworld and Sheol and Hades to give us a better idea of what's taking place both with body and with soul, and Jesus makes that connection. So let's go to Ephesians 4, 1 to 10. Glenda? Mm-hmm. I, this is Paul speaking. I, Paul, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Okay. So look at... Look at the importance of this doctrine, of understanding this. We have the unity of Christians. We have one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, and all of that is based on the truth of Jesus descending and then ascending. And it even is more specific there in verse 9 where I know the ESV says lower regions, It can be translated, you know, underworld. So in other words, that uh, the entirety of Sheol, the realm of the dead, and then verse 10, then would be a contrast to that that heaven. And remember how, uh, because it says uh, in the ESV, it says um, the highest heaven, and that, of course, would be up uh, in glory. I better keep moving here. Um, So what we know is that Jesus for sure came down to what we've referred to as upper Sheol or paradise. Um, Jesus told the criminal on the cross, truly I tell you today, or I say to you today, today you will be with me in paradise. And then Zechariah 9, 9 to 12. Who's got that? Michelle? Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Make a loud shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and endowed with salvation. Lowly and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the fowl of a pack of a pack animal. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off. And he will speak peace to the nations, and his reign will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, O prisoners who have the hope. The very day I'm declaring that I will return double to you. Okay, so what we here have in Zechariah are these prisoners of hope. They're going to, from sea to sea, 
um, they're going to be released from Sheol. The captives are going to be set free. And um, he also descended into the uh, lower two compartments of Sheol. I, I think we can say that with confidence because um, something had to take place for him to be able to set the prisoners free from upper Sheol. And that something is the seizure of the keys to death in Hades. So Revelation... Oh, sorry, Mark, I did skip you, didn't I? Um, actually, sorry, give it to Julian. We're going to go to you after that. <laughs> Revelation 1, 12 to 18, my arrow's in the wrong place. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed, <clears throat> clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. And his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. And having in his right hand seven stars and a sharp two-edged sword which comes out of his mouth, and his face was like the sun shining in its power. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not fear, I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Okay, so we have, again, this is chapter 1 of Revelation. So this is the setting the tone for the entirety of the chapter. Obviously, this is the uh, second person of God. This is Christ, and um, John falls down as though dead, and Jesus uh, provides comfort and tells him, I was dead, but I hold the keys to death and Hades. And then, uh, Mark, go ahead and read 1 Peter three eighteen to 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, as an appeal, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Okay, so we see here that Jesus descended to the bottomless pit. He descended to the abyss where he proclaimed his victory to the spirits that are down there could say a lot more about that, but I just want to, to, to be clear about his descent, that he descends not only to upper Sheol, to paradise, to Abraham's bosom, but he's going the full distance of that intermediate place, the realm of the dead, and declaring his victory of what took place. And then uh, well, let's try to squeeze in our last couple of verses here. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 23. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Okay, so we see that Christ in being raised 
He was the first fruit. He was the first to take on that glorified body. He is the first fruit of those that have fallen asleep. And then uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. Tammy. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Okay, so we have Jesus, who's taken the keys to death in Hades. He is the firstborn among creation, and that is connected directly in those verses that Tammy just read to the head of the church. So we see how everything has changed. Everything has changed once Jesus has descended into the realm of the dead and then has ascended. And so though that's what's at stake, and, and we frequently hear... Um, um, Christians talk about or theologians write about or pastors preach about the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. And when they're saying these things, these are, these are different aspects of what it is that's been accomplished in Christ's death and then specific to his burial, what's taking place during that time. And then, of course, at his resurrection, what it is that's been gained and namely that he is the firstborn among creation. Now, next time, what my plan is on the part two of this is for us to actually uh, get in there even a little bit more because this is what happens if it hasn't, I'm sure that it's happened for some of you at this point, which is you, all these different questions pop up in your head and sometimes answering a question brings up two more. And so what we're going to look at next week is I'm going to look a little closer at the timing because this war that I'm talking about and that we read about in Psalm 68, we're going to look a little bit closer about the timing of that war when the war took place and questions that we want to answer then is, all right, we know that Jesus died in humiliation. We know that he rose in victory. But what about in that in-between space? Was he continuing to suffer? Did he go down uh, and, and have to endure more pain? Did, um, you know, when this whole war that was taking place, when did... When did that begin and things like that? So that's my little teaser for, uh, for next week that we're going to look at. And my plan, Lord willing, is that to be a little bit shorter so that I can leave some time at the end for questions. Not guaranteeing that I will have the answers, but I will do the best that I can with that. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, again for this time. Thank you that um, we have so many different verses to lean on and that this is no small thing, that this isn't just a... Um, uh, a, a, a rabbit hole of some kind to look down. Lord, this is, this is significant. This is meaningful. This is helpful. And so may we see that, Lord. May we be able to put it in its proper place, really, so that we might more appropriately put you, from our perspective, you in your proper place and ourselves in our proper place so that we might worship you um, uh, more accurately and more purely. Bless the service that we're about to participate in. May you be pleased. May you be glorified. We ask it all in the name of your son, Jesus, who descended and rose again in victory. Amen.